I'm Daniel Chacon. Today, I am honored to speak to yet another U.S. Poet Laureate, this one the current Poet Laureate, serving two terms, and uh, I'm, of course, talking about Joy Harjo. She is a writer of the Muscogee Creek Nation and author of nine books of poetry, two books of memoir. She is winner of countless awards, including the Wallace Stevens Award, two NEA fellowships, and a Guggenheim Fellowship, just to name a few. We had her here for an event. Uh, It was a virtual event. And after she read and performed some of her music, I was able to sit down and talk to her. So I'm going to share that conversation with you right now. So stick around. Words on a wire. Words on a wire. Thank you, Joy. That was beautiful. Um, I love the poetry and I love the music. In fact, your new album, I've been listening to it on uh, iTunes. It's beautiful. But um, there was something you said in your presentation that for some reason stuck with me, maybe even more than some of the poems. It's what you said between poems. You said, that's what I do with contradictions. I put them in poetry. That is a quotable quote. <laughs> uh, can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean? I don't know. I was reading and then I was thinking contradictions. <laughs> I mean, that's, you get that with bilingualism sometimes, you know, like Spanglish. And I always remember Alarista. Oh, yes. I remember yeah. Him. Yeah. yeah, I always remember because we all hung out together way back. Did you? Was, yeah, we did. Ricardo Sanchez and, you know, all that bunch. Wow. And, uh, yeah, and I always remember thinking, you know, that, that what happens when Spanish and English tango with each other. Or tango, right. <laughs> tango. <laughs> right. Yeah. So there you go. You start that play. I guess. I guess what helps too is you find a sense of play. Mm-hmm. I mean, playing kind of lifts it up if you can find a way to move, and uh, and with light footed, so to speak. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah contradiction. Like <laughs> is such an important word for poetry. You know, not only because of you know the the famous Whitman quote, of course, which I don't have to say because everybody knows it. They are large. They contain the same multitudes. But also because it kind of expresses tension in a mm-hmm. sense. And, and your poetry, there is so much tension. Uh, it it seems like uh, uh, an appropriate word or appropriate way to say, this is what we do with poetry. We, we present contradictions and we process them. Yes. I mean, I mean, usually by the time we get there, I, I don't know where I'm going when I'm writing a poem. If I do, like in one of the poems in American Sunrise, and I'm called How to Write a Poem in a Time of War, I don't know what was going to happen. I mean, I knew that, you know, it, it's like I was standing out looking at the land and my spirit came to me when I was thinking of this contradiction. I'm going to go back. And yet here is our homelands, but none of our people are here. They moved, they, Holocaust, they just wiped, you know, moved us out. And half of us died, more than half died on the trip, you know, walking over. And um, so in that poem, I looked out at the trees and, and my spirit said, well, what did you learn here? 
And I'm thinking, where do you start? You know, where is the starting point in history? But I just kind of followed it and, and found, you know, wound through, wound through some of that story, but I had no idea where it was going to go. And then it surprised me. The poem t- tells me, because I learned from the poem, right. that the, a great-grandfather blew a song into the children, mm. to the grandson and the granddaughter, so their descendants would find their way home. And I realized that's what had happened. My husband's also the same tribal nation, is that somebody blew that song. That's interesting. Uh, You say the spirit spoke to me and the spirit said to me, can you talk a little bit about the voice of that spirit? I think, well, it winds up in my poetry. I mean, when I started writing poetry way back, things would come through. I think I, I wrote poetry sometimes to try to make sense of some stuff, and sometimes from my small-mindedness, you know, it's somebody just trying to find their way, and I'm young and, and full of, you know, all of that, full of hormones and, and, and trying to figure out my place and dealing with the things that we do. But I would retreat to poetry. It's a kind of silence, and it's a kind of place of wisdom. And there, I slowed down and stopped whining or, you know, I worked hard too. I looked back, I had, I was a single mother with two children working full time, you know, working and going to school and taking a full load. And, but poetry was, a, it gave me a place to go. And then it felt like in the poems, I would be spoken to. They would give me like the poem, Remember, which is now going to be a book. And now somebody's making a movie of it, etc. That poem came, I was one of my early poems, but it was because I was being told something. Mm. I was being told what I needed to remember. And I think it still goes on now. There's things, you know, I think any artist will tell you this, whether it's literary or paint, you know, art, whatever art, making music or song, is that, I mean, what are our materials? Yes, we might use words or, you know, color, paint, whatever, but we're actually in a call and response with the spiritual world. I mean, it's all the spiritual world. All of it is. Right, right. Yeah. You know, anytime I, I, I wanted, I want to say anytime my, my joy harjo neuron fires in my brain, but I could just as easily say anytime the spirit reminds me of joy harjo, it always connects to a particular memory. And this is the day when I was at University of Oregon getting my MFA along with Andres Montoya. We were the only two Chicanx poets in the, in the, in the program at the time. And, and uh, there was one indigenous poet named John Boyd. We were all three in that program. It could be an alienating experience. But I remember one time Andres came home and he says, I got to read you this poem. And he read me what became one of the most important poems, I think, for my generation of Chicanx poets and writers. And that is uh, your poem, The Woman Hanging from the 13th Floor Window. It, it, was, it, was, it blew me away the first time I heard it. And there's this one line you, you, you write, when she was young, she ate wild rice on scraped down plates in warm wood rooms. God, I love that line. And I would say it over and over, and I probably stolen it uh, several times as well in my prose. But it became a really important poem 
for activists and Chicanx activists and, and indigenous activist poets because it gave us permission to include our activism in, in, you know, in our work. And I'm wondering if you remember writing that poem and, and, and if you remember the process and, and what it meant to you. I had, yeah, this one, I have a story. Sometimes I don't, they just kind of happen. But I had, uh, I went to graduate school to the Iowa Writers Workshop with Sandra Cisneros. Oh God, the same we class. First, yeah, we were, we're still really close friends, but we were, we came into that first writing workshop, MFA, you know, Iowa, and with a teacher, and I won't name her, somebody who just wrote a, th- uh, a book on it and totally misquoted me. I mean, they lied, they, they made up stuff because I have never spoken this teacher's name and it's not somebody they named. Right. Somebody, the one person they said that I spoke against was the one, one professor there who helped me. Hmm. Which really, but anyway, that's a side note. So she and I, of course, I see Sandra and she sees me. So we wind up sitting together. And I said, "Look, we're sitting in the back. We're in, <laughs> in the other class, just like you know, Indians always sit in the back." She reminded me that it was a bit very public conversation we had once. But um, yes, and no. So there was, so there was, there was a worksheet every week, and. Um, I guess if you got put on it, it was really something. Well, that teacher, um, we, we had been in that class for a month, and our poems were never. Wow. So I said, "We got to go, Sandra. We got to go talk to the teacher, take the professor." And she says, "Yeah." Well, I said, well, "Let's go." So we went to her during her office hours, and she saw us coming and just looked panicked. My God! Once I saw the panic, I said, "Let's just go." But the next week, our poems were in the worksheet. Hmm. And that's what inspired that poem. No. So anyway, that 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 was Sandra and that, how Sandra and I got connected. And we've been friends ever since. But I went to see her. I was in uh, she was uh, visiting. At, she lived in Chicago, you know, with her mom and brothers. And she was home. And so I went to drove to Chicago to see her and meet her mom. I got to meet her family and went to the uh, King Ted exhibit. And one place I went was the Indian Center. And so about a year or two after that, I'm sitting in my office. I went back and taught at the Indian School, which had been a Bureau of Indian Affairs school, mostly for high school and two years postgraduate. And now they were turning it into a two-year arts college. And so I went back there to teach. And I remember sitting in my office. I can remember sitting in my office at the school uh, with teaching all Native kids. And I, I loved it. And I kept seeing that rocking chair. What stayed with me through all of Chicago? I mean, at a good time, the kids did, you know, Sears, all of it, Sears Tower. We just, it was a rocking chair. There was a rocking chair in the Indian Center. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I would look at the rocking chair and there would be a couple of little kids waiting for their mother while she was talking with the social worker. Another time there was an old guy in there. He's probably the age I am now or even younger, sitting there singing songs that are supposed to be passed on, singing them to himself. He had been put there in the U.S. government's relocation program. Mm -hmm. And then there was a woman who sat there and she wouldn't leave. She was kind of haunting me. And she says, well, I could see her out of the corner of my eye. 
I'm not going to leave until you write my story. Oh, my God. And that's how that poem came about. Because there is no east side of Chicago, you know. There is no 13th floor. They never put a 13th floor. And um, But that's how that poem came about. And, you know, I had never heard those lines by themselves. But what's interesting, when she was young, she ate wild rice and warm, you know, in warm plates and warm wood rooms. It's like that moment makes a home. Mm-hmm. It's like those, it makes a little fire in the middle where somebody has refuge, not out into this world that could destroy you just because of who you are. Right. And, you know, we could even go deeper into that line and look at the contradiction part of it, the tension of it, because it's not only a, a warm image, but it's also uh, can be taken also as an uncomfortable image. Mm-hmm. You know, the warm wood room uh, uh, could be taken as humid and almost, you know, even on the level of a sweat lodge. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, just there's so many different ways that you could read that line. And it was, you know, I think it was that maybe that was why it struck me. I'm just thinking about it now. But that poem, nonetheless, became very, very important for Chicanx and indigenous poets and writers for many, many, even now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other poem, I think, that was uh, foundational for a lot of us was She Had Some Horses. Mm-hmm. completely different poem in terms of its language. Uh, she had some horses and then she had horses, she had horses, she had horses, you know, as opposed to, you know, uh, can you talk a little bit about that poem? And I, I think it was even influential on the Chicanx poet Ada Limon, Ada, Ada Limon in her poem. Uh, uh, what is the, the name of that poem? Um, uh, what it's like to be a girl or where she writes about wanting to be a horse, a female horse. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Sometimes I don't always know. I can remember writing it. I remember where I was. In, um, I think I was in Santa Fe. But that whole book, She Had Some Horses, I realized I had been down in Las Cruces, and I was coming back that drive up north to either Albuquerque or Santa Fe. And this horse appeared. I don't know, it might sound crazy, but I saw a horse. (laughs) I saw a horse out of the corner that I had not, that was an old friend. Not in this time, but it was, and I realized later that the whole book, She Had Some Horses, was engendered by that moment. And, uh, so, yeah, I don't know how to say too much about the horses, except there were a lot of influences. Like it, I was hearing Navajo horse songs. Um, I have family, my great-grandfather, six generations, who fought Andrew Jackson, literally fought him in combat against the illegal move. He had a way with horses that we still talk about. I mean, there was all that. Mm. undergirding it and then your new album the one that's just been released has a beautiful song called there will be horses Uh, one day there will be horses yeah and and the horses is you know uh, hope and uh connection i suppose i mean i don't want to go to you know analyze the poems but um can you talk a little bit about your process of um writing 
and music is it a similar process is it is it the same spirit that leads you from one to another do you sometimes start a poem and it ends up being a song or or vice versa it's both it's like anything you know it's like sometimes i i'm very rhythm oriented i mean you can hear that in you know even in those quotes it's very i'm very rhythm it's usually you know, it might be image, there might be who knows what sets them off. But um, so often I compose music with rhythm tracks or I get, I download loops. Mm. And download I start loops. that way. Yeah. yeah, or I'll do that or I'll, you know, or make a loop. But often I start in that way. Sometimes, you Wait, know. I'm sorry, download loops. Can you, can you unpack that a little bit? What do you mean? Oh, you can just pull up, you can pull up drum tracks. And then drum tracks that are built, the people have built, and then you can bring them into your, you know, in your recording, whatever recording program you have. And so you've got a whole, you can bring in a whole rhythm section. Wow. That's like bringing other spirits and other voices into your work. Yeah, it's, yeah that's the difference. But some of them are different. Like that one day there will be horses that just, that came out of a melody. Mm. Stood at my door. Peered out from the wreck of a three-day drunk. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say good man works with hands, wants a chance. Something, but, you know, it's just, and it's phrasing, a lot of phrasing. I mean, it's, it's all phrasing. And you become really aware of it. I think I'm a horn player, and then I start becoming, and I like to improvise. And there's most of that horn on there is improvised in the flute. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's beautiful because it, it, it's hopeful, yet it's kind of a sad hope yeah. as if, you know, as if, you know, one of the things that that I've always admired about your career is your activism. And I'm glad you're the 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 poet laureate of the United States that you are representing the United States much more effectively than any politicians we've had. And, you know, uh, in, in the last, uh, well, since colonization. Uh, you represent poetry, you know, and um, and so one of the projects I, I usually ask poet laureates. I've had five poet laureates on Words on a Wire, including um, uh, 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 Philip Levine and Mark Strand and and Tracy K. Smith and and Juan Felipe Herrera. And I always like to ask them the same question, but I don't have to ask you this question because you're so active. But the question is usually, what do you want to accomplish as poet laureate? And I don't know if you're, you, you know, if we want to open up that question or if we want to just go directly to one of the things that you have done, which is put together this anthology, uh, which could very well be, you know, one of the most important poetry anthologies to come out of this decade. And uh, that is um, uh, um, the title of it is where is that title? When the light of the world was subdued, our, song our songs came through. through. A Norton anthology of Native nations poetry. When the light of the world was subdued, our law, our songs came through. Can you talk about this title, how you came up with it, and how it might relate to your responsibility or your opportunity as poet laureate of the United States? I think I remember saying when I was a student at University of New Mexico, I was in, I was working on a BFA in studio art. And then I started going into the poetry, which surprised me. 
And I remember saying that, thinking, I don't think I ever said it out loud. If I do anything else, if I, when I leave this world, I want natives to be seen as human beings. That's and so the P Poet Laureate Project, Living Nations, Living Words, and I just got this yesterday, is a contemporary, an anthology of contemporary poetry based on that, the poet, the map, that light, which I spoke about earlier in the reading. And when the light of the world was subdued, our songs came through. There had never been um, like a comprehensive uh, Norton anthology of native poetry. But... I mean, how can it be comprehensive when we're given, we, at first it was 300 pages, and then <laughs> they said, okay, 350, and then it went over. Oh, my God. Yeah. But um, I said, look, you've got over 540, 574 federally recognized tribal nations. There are a few more than that that are legit because there's a lot of spinoff. People do bizarre things, you know, with stereotypes and all that and make up tribes. But there are some legit, non-federally recognized tribal nations. And we have how many pages, and it's supposed to be from time immemorial <laughs> into the youngest poets writing today. I mean, what do you, how do you, so I assembled a, a team of all indigenous poets. Mm -hmm. And we were the ones who, as a team, I, we divided it instead of, just chronological into geographical areas, northeast, midwest, and they cover huge areas. North, you know, and that was hard too, because every tribe there's different languages, people are different. Uh, northeast, midwest, um, but we decided to go with land, and that was helpful. Mm. Uh, mountains and plains, Pacific Northwest, Alaska, Hawaii was huge. West, southwest, and then over into the southeast. But what was useful with that is that you can kind of see how colonization worked in every area. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could see also see how much land and land formations and the relationship with the land also affected, you know, affected the areas. And you can also see through the years how the orality shifts so that it even becomes more visual rather than, um, you know, rather than people who were still closely in touch with cultures centered in orality. I realized later, you know, when I was working on that anthology is that when I was a student at high school student at Indian school, that we were with, most of us were within a generation of living within oral cultures. And some wow. came fresh to the school from having lived in totally different languages. And yeah, very smart and very good storytellers and very, you know, had an amazing sense of morality. Right. Well, it's uh, it's it sounds like a great project. I can't wait to get my hands on it. And um, thank you for your your service as uh, the representative of poetry for all of us. Uh, I I feel like I'm included in your uh, in your position. And I I we're running out of time, but I wonder if I could just ask you one really brief thing. I hope this is okay. Mm -hmm. Can you show us your tattoo and? Tell us a little bit about it. Okay. I know I need to write a poem that tells about all oh, this one here. Our people used to tattoo extensively before Christianity. And the women, I have a photo, an image photograph. They didn't do photographs. And I have a painting of my great-grandfather, the one who fought Andrew Jackson, and you could see tattoos, his tattoos. But they were usually given, you know, 
not when you get high and, and then decide to go get something, but represented <laughs> certain right. kinds of accomplishments. They had a, a meeting and I was, I lived in Hawaii for 11 years and was close with a lot of Hawaiian people and, and a lot of the culture bearers. And a friend of mine, Keone, helped, Nunez helped bring back um, traditional tattoo art. This one isn't his, by the way. He's, I have a one that he did, the old style. But um, so, yeah, so I'm not going to go into what all it means. But when I went to Tahiti, I asked him, one of his <laughs> friends down there uh, did this one for me. Uh, it's beautiful. And there's a reason for it. And then I had my shirts all buttoned up, but I have one the Maoris gave me from wow. New Zealand. <laughs> Joy, thank you so much for joining us. I think uh, Kalina is going to close the program, but thank you. Thank you very much for joining us here on the virtual, metaphorical, and literal border. Yes. Okay. Muchas gracias. Thank you. I'd like to thank Joy Harjo for sitting down with me after her event and uh, the conversation that we had. It was it was nice. She was a very easy person to talk to, to get along with. Uh, remember, she has about nine books of poetry, maybe two or three memoirs. Uh, she has albums available at your favorite, wherever you buy music, iTunes or Spotify. I'm, I'm not quite sure where people buy music these days. I don't think they go into stores anymore and buy albums and CDs, but you can order her books, her music, and please do support writers, support poetry in the United States. I'm Daniel Chacon. See you next time. Mm-hmm.